Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today we're discussing serial killers' first murders. What do the murders look like, and how does a killer's modus operandi change after their first slaying? Dr. Mike Omot, professor of psychology at Radford University, collects statistics for the Serial Killer Information Center. Omot found that for males, the average age at first kill is 27.5 years, while for females, it skews a bit older, at 31 years. Additionally, first murders tend to occur close to a killer's home, Criminologist Scott Bond posits that this is due to the comfort and familiarity it offers them. But a killer's behaviors may change over time. At first kill, a murderer is inexperienced and may make mistakes that they eventually learn from. For example, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, was a serial killer known for his shooting spree that left six dead. But Berkowitz's first victims, two teenage friends, were attacked with a knife. Berkowitz was so shocked by the blood at the scene that he ran away screaming. The incident made him change his M.O., switching to a 44 caliber revolver. Other things may change over time, such as the killer's motive or the amount of time spent planning a murder. Serial killers may also go outside their comfort zone, killing victims further away from their own home. Sometimes, however, an initial murder is so successful that the killer continues on in the same fashion for years. In today's Crime Bites, we'll hear clips of three different killers' first murders. This first clip is from ParCast Original, Today in True Crime, and covers the first murder committed by Thomas Piper, a.k.a. the Boston Belfry murderer. Between 1873 and 1875, Piper killed two people and assaulted another. On December 5, 1873, 24-year-old Piper was heading to church with his brothers, but he strayed from the group along the way. Piper doubled back to head home, put on a cape, and grabbed a club. He then walked the streets of Boston, looking for a victim. Bridget Landrigan, a young maidservant, was on her way back to her mistress's home after a night out with friends unaware of the eyes that were fixated on her every move. Piper said goodbye to his brothers. He once again told them he was heading home to bed. While he did rush to his house, 
Piper snuck out the back door and went to fetch his weapon from under the fence. Then, still dressed in all black and wearing his favorite flowing cape, Thomas Piper hid himself in the darkness of Boston's streets. He found Bridget Landrigan again near Glover's Corner, but it wasn't the right time to act. The street was busy. He followed her down the secluded back streets. When Bridget Landrigan reached the dark, abandoned Columbia Street, she heard footsteps getting unusually close behind her. She turned around to see who was there, but it was too late. Piper struck her over the head with his weapon. She fell to the ground, and he struck her once more. The force of the blows, combined with the impact of the fall, shattered her skull. It was enough to kill her, but Piper may have strangled and stabbed Landrigan as well. Following that clip from Today in True Crime, Boston was stunned by the murder, and in the following days, suspicion fell on many. One of their suspects was Thomas Piper himself, but the police couldn't find any solid evidence linking him to the crime, so he was let go. The next year, Piper hired a sex worker named Mary Tyner. They went to her house to complete their transaction. The next morning, Piper struck Mary in the head with a hammer. Afterwards, Piper fled, thinking she was dead but she miraculously survived the brutal attack. In May 1875, Piper lured five-year-old Mabel Young up to the belfry of the church and beat her with a hammer. Piper was finally caught after he tried to move the body. He was arrested and sentenced to death for his crimes. Thomas Piper's first and subsequent victims were strangers to him. But next, we'll take a look at a killer who preferred targeting her own family. Coming up, serial killer Marianne Cotton kills her first victim. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. So far, we've looked at a killer who selected a stranger as his first victim. But what causes someone to turn their murderous impulses toward members of their family? The next clip comes from Female Criminals and covers serial killer Marianne Cotton. In 1852, 19-year-old Mary married 35-year-old William Mowbray after finding out she was pregnant. The baby didn't survive, and neither did the children from Mary's next several pregnancies. 
To make matters worse, William changed jobs often, which meant Mary was uprooted frequently, forced to move between homes and communities, a situation she found frustrating. After four years of marriage, Mary would finally have a surviving child, a daughter, and then a second and third. But the babies didn't seem to bring her the joy she craved. Deeply unhappy in her marriage, 34-year-old Mary felt that she was out of options. Divorce in Victorian England was next to impossible for a woman. So Mary decided to break societal norms and strike up an affair with a man named Joseph Natras. The records don't show when or how Marianne and Joseph met, but at some point between 1864 and 1870, Marianne fell passionately in love with Joseph. Perhaps she imagined that Joseph would marry her if only William were out of the way. Of course, it would be hard to land a husband with three children depending on her, so Marianne would need to eliminate them too. In Victorian England, arsenic was astonishingly easy to come by. It was a popular and inexpensive rat poison, and it wouldn't have raised any eyebrows at all if Marianne were to buy it in large quantities. We don't know exactly how she administered the poison, but it's widely believed that Marianne slipped arsenic into her 10-month-old son John's food or tea. In September of 1864, he fell ill. His symptoms included intestinal distress and fever. The ailment was sudden and worked quickly. Soon, the child passed away. Lillian de Bortoli of the Center for Forensic Behavioral Sciences Australia studied trends among parents who murder their own children. Most child-killing parents are fathers or stepfathers, Mothers who kill their own biological children are rare and usually suffer from mental conditions that are a factor in their murderous drive. After so many losses, William barely batted an eye at John's death. In his mind, the only notable thing was that the tragedy brought with it a silver lining. William and Marianne were able to collect the insurance payment. In that clip from Female Criminals, Marianne Cotton killed her first victim, her own son, John. But John would not be Marianne's last victim. Her son was little more than a warm-up. She soon set her sights on her husband. After William died at his wife's hand, Marianne went on to marry three more men, all of whom died of gastric fever. All nine of Marianne's children also died after suffering stomach pains. She collected life insurance payouts for nearly all of the deaths. Arsenic poisoning is known to cause stomach pain and gastric issues. Though Marianne is suspected to have killed around 21 people, she was only convicted of one, her stepson, Charles Edward Cotton. For this crime, she was sentenced to hang. Like Mary, our final killer also used poison on her first victim. Our last clip is from Serial Killers and covers Elizabeth Wetlofer a Canadian nurse who killed eight senior citizens in her care and attempted to murder six others. Elizabeth worked at a long-term care facility in Woodstock, Ontario. In June of 2007, 40-year-old Elizabeth attempted to kill her first victims by injecting them with insulin. Fortunately, they survived, and Elizabeth's crime went unnoticed. 
But two months later, Elizabeth was ready to try again. On August 11, 2007, Elizabeth was on a double shift. She arrived for work at 3 p.m. and went on her rounds. Although the exact trigger is unknown, at around 6 p.m., Elizabeth began to think about ending James's life. She later described this feeling. There was always that red surging that I identified with God talking to me. Then I'd go get the insulin. That night, she did just that. Around 9.30 p.m., Elizabeth slipped into the windowless storage room and opened the medical fridge. She reached inside and hastily grabbed a spare insulin needle. Elizabeth went into James's room, assuring him that the doctor was requesting he get a vitamin shot. James didn't think anything of it. Since she'd already practiced insulin dosage on Clotilda and Albina, Elizabeth knew just how much insulin would end James's life and how quickly. She injected him with 50 units of short-acting insulin. James didn't resist. As soon as it was over, Elizabeth felt an immediate release of pressure. She started to laugh, soon dissolving into a hysterical fit. But James didn't go quietly. Throughout the night, he struggled. He deliriously called out, I love you, and I'm sorry, repeatedly. Elizabeth assumed he was talking about his family. After nearly six hours of suffering, James passed away at 3.30 a.m. Elizabeth, ever the dutiful nurse, followed protocol. As the only nurse on duty, she checked for vital signs and listened for his heartbeat with her stethoscope for one minute. Once she was sure he was dead, she called the doctor on duty. When the doctor arrived, he examined James. Elizabeth waited with bated breath. She finally relaxed when the doctor pronounced him dead and suggested it must have been caused by an embolism from his recent hip surgery. In that clip from Serial Killers, long-term care nurse Elizabeth Wetlofer took the life of her first victim by injecting him with insulin. In September of 2016, Elizabeth checked into an inpatient drug rehabilitation center where she confessed to her crimes. For nearly a decade, Elizabeth had been injecting patients with insulin, killing eight seniors in her care. Elizabeth admitted she knew right from wrong, but she committed the murders because of a surge she could not control. She also said that God or the devil or whatever wanted me to do it. Serial killers are driven to carry out their first murders for a number of perverse reasons. Thomas Piper killed at random, striking at opportune moments with no obvious motive. His first kill was out in the open streets of Boston, and he almost got caught. So for his next two attacks, he tried to find more private places, such as a church belfry. Marion Cotton's first monstrous kill was her own 10-month-old son. Her weapon of choice, arsenic, was so effective that she continued her poisoning spree for many more years. In the end, she was likely responsible for the deaths of three husbands, all of her own children, and several more who got in her way, all in a misguided quest to find the happiness that had eluded her her entire life. 
Guided by a surge from a higher power, Elizabeth Wetlawfer used her professional knowledge of medicine to kill her first victim in an almost undetectable way. Indeed, her first murder was so successful that she may have continued killing for much longer had she not eventually confessed to her crimes. With their first murders, these three serial killers took tentative initial steps down a dark new path. With one successful kill under their belts, they took what they learned and moved on to their next victims, cementing their place in infamy. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Killer's First Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the deaths of political figures. Under what circumstances did these presidents and heads of states die? And what were the political and social impacts of their deaths? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast Originals, Today in True Crime, Female Criminals, or Serial Killers on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.